All right, we're continuing together today our study in our Confession of Faith in chapter 31, which deals with the state of man after death and also the resurrection from the dead. And we have seen that death is the separation of the body from the soul. And the bodies of men after death return to the dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. So everybody, when they die, their bodies go in the ground and their souls immediately go to God and are conscious before him. Well, at that point, there is a division made. And our confession says the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. However, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Now, we've been spending the last several weeks talking about the blessed um, end result and outcome of the righteous, that they are perfected in holiness, they dwell in paradise, they live with Christ, they behold the face of God, they anticipate the resurrection of their bodies. And that is all very wonderful and delightful and exciting to contemplate. But now today we come to a very sobering, a description of what happens to the wicked. Now, um, the doctrine that we're going to be talking about today, which is the doctrine of hell, is not a popular doctrine. And in fact, in this day and age, people go to great lengths to try to explain this doctrine away or to try to make it seem like it's not so bad, or to deny that uh, hell even exists at all. But the Bible is very clear about the subject, and uh, Christ himself uh, taught more on the subject of hell than he did on the subject of heaven. Uh, What's amazing about the doctrine of hell is the vast majority of the information we have about it came directly from Jesus Christ in the four Gospels. And so this is not something that is just the, the lurid imagination of some twisted individual. This is God the Son describing the eternal destiny of those who defy him and who sin against him, and who rebel against him. And so we need to understand that hell is as real as heaven, it is as eternal as as heaven, and it stands in complete contrast to heaven. And it is something that is is, uh, dreadful, um, beyond imagination to contemplate. Um, And therefore, it's something that should, number one, highly motivate us to seek to flee from the wrath to come. And number two, to be profoundly thankful for a means of deliverance from the wrath to come. 
The other thing we see about the doctrine of hell, and I think I've mentioned this previously, is that um, it's not more awful than it ought to be. God is a God of perfect justice, and he does not punish people more than they deserve. Um, we talk about the punishment fitting the crime. And if it does, you can have some ability to measure the gravity of the crime by looking at the degree of the punishment that is assigned to it. And if the degree of punishment that is assigned to the crime is very great, then the crime itself must be very bad. We give someone who is a, of a petty thief in a store, a shoplifter, perhaps a week in jail. Uh, we give someone who uh, commits manslaughter 20 years in jail. We give someone who commits first-degree murder uh, the death penalty. And the reason why we mete out these different penalties is because we recognize these different crimes have different degrees of evil uh, in them and attached to them. And so it is with hell. The, the, the degree of the punishment fits the degree of the crime. And since the degree of the punishment is of infinite duration, then the degree of the crime is of infinite evil. And that's the reason why uh, hell is as bad as it is and is as long as it is and is as unrecoverable or irremediable as it is, is because that is how bad sin really is. See, the trouble is we tend to think of sin as being not so bad. It's not that big of a deal. But um, our comprehension of how bad it is, um, is very faulty. And we don't understand what degree of offense sin is against God. And that's why we're shocked when we see the degree of punishment that he applies to it. So as we go through this and we look at these various passages, uh, keep in mind that this is designed to reveal to us uh, the evil of sin. And of course, when we see what had to be done and who had to die to redeem us from that sin. Uh, it tells us that nothing less than an infinite sacrifice was necessary to redeem us from sins because our sins are nothing less than an infinite evil, which require an infinite punishment. And therefore an infinite sacrifice was required to redeem us from them. And that's why the son of God had to die. That's why the blood of bulls and goats and animal sacrifices wouldn't suffice or even the sacrifice of another human. Um, it had to be the sacrifice of the Son of God. Only that was sufficient to atone for sins, which shows, once again, the degree of evil, the degree of atonement that was necessary to deliver us from them. So when we look at the degree of punishment, when we look at the degree of the sacrifice that had to be made in order to redeem us from them, it gives us some idea of the evil of sin. And so we've got to quit thinking of sin as something light, as something that's no big deal, as something that can be easily brushed off and, and forgotten about. Our sins are enormous, uh, unimaginably evil acts in the divine economy of justice. 
and therefore we need to um, repent of them and turn from them and strive to be done with them in our lives. Well, let's then look at a couple of passages in the Bible. Um, The first passage we want to look at is in Luke chapter 16. The Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Now, mind you, um, most of these passages, the vast majority of them, are passages that were spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ and come from the Gospels. So Luke chapter 16, we'll start reading at verse 19. Now, this is really the definitive passage on what happens to people after they die. And this passage was set before us by Jesus Christ. It contains a great deal of comfort and also a tremendously powerful and potent warning. It says in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, rememberest that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence." Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, there is a lot that could be said about this passage, but I want to just briefly go over it with you and bring out the major points that it contains. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is that we have Two people described as living in this life, just like you and I are living in this life right now, a rich man and a very poor man. And these two men in this life are very unequal in their material possessions and in their personal advantages. One has every advantage materially, socially. Um, He's uh, rich. He has a fine house, fine clothes, fine food. No doubt many friends. The other uh, is poor, destitute, sick, 
and his only friends are dogs and they're only friends because they can take advantage of him. But the trouble with these, not the trouble, but, but, the, but the outcome of these two men is, is very interesting in that both of them die. And in death, they're completely equal. Death comes to very poor and wretched people and death comes to very wealthy and uh, very uh, elevated people in society. Everyone dies. Death is the great leveler. And it doesn't matter how rich you are, you're going to die. It doesn't matter how poor you are, you're going to die as well. They both die. But what we see is a dramatic reversal of their conditions in the next life. Um, the rich man becomes totally destitute. He can't even purchase a drop of water. Whereas Lazarus, of course, is completely blessed, totally complacent, entirely happy. Every need is met. And he is, uh, it says, in Abraham's bosom. And of course, Abraham is the father of those who believe. Uh, he is the progenitor, if you will, of the church of God because it began, Israel began with him, and uh, we are part of that Israel of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the question we want to ask ourselves is, did the rich man go to hell because he was rich? And did the poor man go to heaven because he was poor? And the answer to that question, those two questions, is absolutely not. Because who else is in heaven along with Lazarus? And was Abraham rich? Abraham was phenomenally rich. He was the Bill Gates of his day. Okay? The Bible says that he was richer than all the men of the East. He was extremely rich. So it's not a matter that if you're rich, you're going to hell. And if you're poor, you're going to heaven. And there are a great many poor people in hell. We know that Judas Iscariot is in hell and Judas Iscariot was willing uh, for 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. 30 pieces of silver is not a lot of money. And so apparently for him, 30 pieces of silver was a big deal because he was poor. And so we find poor people in hell. We find rich people in hell. We find poor people in heaven. We find rich people in heaven. It's not our economic status in this life in either direction that determines whether we wind up in heaven or not. The thing of, about Lazarus is that he had faith in God while the rich man had none. Lazarus believed the scriptures. He believed what Moses and the prophets wrote about his sinfulness of his need of a savior. He put his trust in God and in God's promised redeemer. And as a result, his sins were forgiven and he went to heaven. And so the rich man, on the other hand, was so enamored of his wealth, his position, his possessions, that he didn't have time for God, he didn't have interest in God, he had no faith in God or the scriptures, and as a result, he died in his sins. Now, these two people are in different places, and we spent the last couple of weeks talking about the blessedness that Lazarus is enjoying the fact that he is perfected in holiness, he dwells in paradise, he lives with Christ, 
he beholds the face of God and he anticipates the resurrection of his body. However, we didn't spend much time talking about the rich man and we want to focus on his condition at this point in time. And what we see is that we can't project the condition we have in this life into the next. Just because the rich man had huge advantages in this life doesn't mean he's going to have any in the next. And that's why we should not be envious of the wicked. Even though they have great wealth and great possession and great influence and, 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 and great notoriety, all those people who run around in Hollywood that are so famous and everybody practically worships, and um, they're wealthy and popular and influential, if they're not saved, they're of all people to be most pitied. And so we're not envious of the wicked because we know where they're going to wind up if they don't get saved. No man's money ever kept him out of hell. No man's fame, no man's notoriety ever kept them out of hell. And so here we see a man who was at the pinnacle of society now in the pit of hell. And we see that the first thing about hell is that it's a place of torment. It says, in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torment. And this torment that this man is experiencing, it says, is a result of flames. It says, I am tormented in this flame. Now, what that torment feels like and how bad it is and how it affects us, those who are there, I should say, um, it's impossible to say for sure. But one thing we know is that it was a very, 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 very uncomfortable situation. He says he was tormented. He says that he is thirsty. He wants a single drop of water. Um, any tiny relief would be a relief for him because of the condition that he's in. Now, the reason why this kind of language is used is because it's the closest thing that we can understand that would identify for us the nature and the degree and the depths of these sufferings. Now, all of us have experienced pain in our lifetime. Maybe we've had scrapes. Maybe we've had broken bones. Maybe we've had um, various other injuries, cuts. But all of you know that probably the injury you fear the most above any other is being burned. And um, you've probably all been burned. I've been burned. Uh, fortunately, not badly. But badly enough to know that of all the injuries... Um, that's the last one I would want to experience. And yet that's precisely the language that Jesus himself uses to describe how bad hell is. Jesus is not exaggerating here when he likens the sufferings in hell to the likeness of being burned with fire. Now, I think he's speaking literally here. I think there literally is fire. And I think that the burning actually is real. But... If this man is at this state a disembodied soul, which he is, and he doesn't have a body, which he doesn't, then the question often arises, well, how do flames affect souls? And the answer is, I don't know. 
But when he says he's thirsty and when he says he's tormented and when he says he's in flames, the reality he's experiencing is not less than what you and I would experience if we were going through that right now. And so if it's literal, it's bad. And if it's not literal, then it's as bad as if it were literal. That's the point. Now, the second thing we see about this man is not only that he's in a, in a place of torment, but he's also in a place of remembrance. Notice verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and now art tormented. Abraham agrees. Yeah, you're, you're tormented. I don't dispute that. And of course, what's Lazarus condition? He's comforted. When, when people are in hell, they're going to be remembering how they lived in this life. They will remember. Abraham says, remember how it was? And uh, he remembers. He remembers his brothers, right? He doesn't want them to come. We'll get to that in a minute. But he remembers. And those memories are also going to be an eternal source of torment. You know, all of us have things in our past that we have done that we regret. We look back on them, and when we remember them, they bring us emotional pain. And the problem with those who are in hell is as they look back on their lives and they see all the times they rebelled against God, they see all the times that they refused offers of mercy. They look back and they see all the times that they didn't go to church, that they didn't listen to God, that they didn't read the Bible, that they went their own way. All of those things will be sources of eternal regret to them. They will look back on their life. They'll see how they lived and they'll say, I traded an eternity in hell for those temporary pleasures. And those things that seem so pleasurable to them in this life, those pleasures of sin that seem so delightful will then be seen for what they really were, which is those things that brought him or her to that terrible position and condition. And so the point is, is that the memories that people have in hell are also going to be a source of torment to them because they will realize how many times and how many ways they made terrible selfish decisions that brought them to that condition and to that place. There will be no happy memories in hell. They won't be able to look back on the times they enjoyed the pleasures of sin and suck new pleasure out of them just by thinking about them. But rather those things will um, be, be thorns in their mind and in their flesh. They will have no pleasant memories. So it's a place of eternal remembrance. And then in verse 26, it says, 
And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So hell is a place of eternal torment. It's a place of eternal remembrance. And it's also a place of eternal separation. This gulf, this gap, if you will, that exists between heaven and hell is permanently fixed. And there's no passing over. Once you die and once you are uh, placed in either heaven or hell, um, you will never leave that condition. Those in hell can't pass over to heaven. And praise God, those in heaven will never pass over into hell. And so in the Old Testament, strike that. I didn't mean to say that. In the book of Revelation, uh, there's a very interesting passage. And uh, it says, He that is unjust... Let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And what that verse is talking about in Revelation 22 and verse 11 is that the condition you die in is the condition you stay in forever. And if you die unholy, you're unholy forever. If you die righteous, you're righteous forever. Your condition, your situation becomes fixed. Now, in this life, there is the possibility of going from being wicked to being righteous through redemption in Christ. But in the next, there isn't. So this idea that there's some kind of a second chance after death um, simply doesn't exist in the word of God. Uh, Jesus never taught that there's a second chance after death. Once you die, you're on one side of that divide or you're on the other and you never, never, never cross over. So death is a place of eternal torment. It's a place of eternal remembrance, bitter memories. It's a place of eternal separation. And we see that once this man recognizes his desperate condition, um, he asks in verse 27, if Abraham would send Lazarus to warn his brothers about heaven and hell and uh, warn them to, to, to make choices so they wouldn't wind up in hell like he did. And it's interesting to note that throughout his life, the rich man never believed in hell and therefore didn't prepare to avoid it. But now he does. But as he remembers his brothers, he knows their condition as well. They don't believe in hell either. And they're making no effort to prepare to avoid it and to go to heaven. And so he says, Father Abraham, you know, send someone to warn my brothers so they don't come here. Now, you've all heard people say, well, you know, um, I don't care if I go to hell because all my friends will be there and we'll have a good time together. Let me ask you a question. Did the rich man want his friends to be there? He didn't. He knew that when the five brothers showed up, they wouldn't have a good time. He knew that in the condition he was in and the things he was experiencing, there are no good times in hell with anybody ever. Now, <clears throat> some of you, I suppose, have been in situations where you have been in extreme pain 
maybe you've had a broken arm or maybe you've been in an automobile accident or maybe you've had phenomenal headache or whatever the case may be. But most of us at some point in our life have suffered excruciating pain. Let me ask you a question. Did you feel like playing cards with your buddies at that point in time? Did, did you feel like uh, talking and just enjoying other people's company? You didn't, okay? You were so focused on your pain and your torment that you were in no condition to enjoy anybody's company. And that's precisely the way it's going to be in hell. When the so-called friends get to hell and they see each other, they are going to be so consumed with their own sufferings, there will be no enjoyment of their company. And so that's what this rich man recognized, and he did not want his brothers to come there, and nobody in hell wants anybody there, including their so-called friends, because they recognize that there is no friendship or happiness or uh, enjoyment of fellowship in that place. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that the rich man wants Lazarus to go and talk to the brothers. And Abraham says, no. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got the Bible. And what Abraham is saying is that the Bible is more powerful in its witness and converting power than is the testimony of resurrected dead people. And if they're not going to hear the scripture, even if someone did rise from the dead and come back and say, hey, you know what? Heaven is real. Hell is real. Heaven's this wonderful place. And they described it. Hell is this horrible place. And they described it. Do you think any more people would get saved? They wouldn't. Now, <clears throat> we have people, and I'm not vouching for the validity of their experiences, but we have people who claim to have died and experienced hell and heaven and then come back, right? You've seen those books. You know, in fact, I was just looking at a Christian book catalog the other day, and it talked about, you know, 90 minutes in heaven or whatever the title of the book was. And, this guy had some near-death experience and um, saw the lights and the people and all that stuff and then came back. He writes this book. Um, those books don't persuade one person, one iota that I, I know of. People read them and, and they're kind of interested in them. I read other books, uh, read about other books of people who have gone to hell and come back. And uh, let me just say this. I don't believe any of those experiences are valid. Okay, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And so these people say they died. Well, if they died, they wouldn't have come back. They would have went to the judgment, and they would have been placed either in heaven or in hell. Okay, the only people who have come back from the dead, if you will, are the people that Jesus raised from the dead. And there's a very limited number of them. And you know what's fascinating? is every one of those people that Jesus raised from the dead, we have not one recorded word from any of them. He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised the, the widow's son. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. Not this Lazarus, but another Lazarus. Okay. 
And the scriptures record not one syllable out of any of their mouths. I find that quite interesting. We don't need their testimony. Jesus gives us all the testimony we need. The scriptures give us all the testimony we need. And if we're not going to believe Jesus, and we're not going to believe the scriptures. Then the testimony of someone who's supposedly gone there and come back isn't going to make a lick of difference. So this then is the nature and the outcome of those who die unconverted, unsaved, who are not trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They go to a place of eternal torment. They go to a place of eternal remembrance, bitter memories, and they go to a place of eternal separation. And uh, what Abraham is saying here is that the scriptures are sufficient to convert anybody who's going to be converted. And if they're not going to hear the Bible, then they're not going to be saved. So this then begins to open up a little bit about what our confession is talking about when it says the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment. And we're going to look at some other passages next week um, that Jesus talks about. Matthew 13, Matthew 18, Matthew 25, uh, Mark chapter 9, Luke Luke, um, or John chapter 3, um, phenomenal amount of teaching by Jesus on this subject, uh, as well as some other passages. So anyway, let us, um, as we think about uh, God's gift of his son, remember that Jesus came to save us from hell. That's why that baby was born, to be a savior. And as we talk about that in the next hour, I hope that you keep in mind what we have been saved from by Jesus. We've been saved from what the rich man uh, experienced, is experiencing, and will continue to experience for all eternity without remission. Well, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for deliverance from the wrath to come. We see those who are not delivered, and we tremble. And Father, we recognize that um, this is what we deserve for our sins. But Father, we also recognize that this is what Jesus came to deliver us from. Thank you, Father, for his saving work. Thank you, Father, for the love that sent him to deliver us from hell. Lord, thank you that that deliverance is without price, without cost. Simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Thank you for salvation from hell. In Jesus' name, amen.